Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Playing another £400 for more presents and for entertainments during her visit. Isabella spent most of the year in York, and according to Robert of Reading, gave birth to a daughter, Joan, while she was there. It has usually been assumed that this chronicler made an error, and was in fact referring to the daughter of the same name whom the Queen bore in 1321. Yet it's just possible that she did indeed bear a child, another Joan, in 1319, and that the infant died young. Nevertheless, no other chronicler mentions this second Joan. Since 1317, Isabella had been urging Edward to address problems in her county of Ponthieu, where a French royalist party in Abbeville was steadily undermining English authority and threatening to turn the fief over to Philip V. But the king had had other, more pressing concerns on his mind, and he had also neglected affairs in Gascony, which had earned him the censure of the Pope and the French king. Apart from needing to sort out these problems, there was another reason why it was politic for Edward to go to France. It was customary for each new king to receive the homage of all his vassals for the lands they held of him. And for some time now, Philip V had been pressing Edward II to come to France to perform this feudal duty in respect of Gascony, Ponthieu and Montreuil. It was also customary for English kings to resist such demands for as long as possible, since they regarded the act of homage to be incompatible with their royal dignity. Before, Edward had been able to plead the unrest in his kingdom as being responsible for the delay. But there was now no reason why he should not go to France in the near future, and every reason why he needed Philip's goodwill. So, in May 1319, he reluctantly sent Walter Stapledon, Bishop of Exeter, to the French court to make the necessary arrangements. Stapleton was also to make a detour to Hainaut to inspect one of the Count's daughters, who had been suggested as a possible bride for Prince Edward. The Count, William V, was married to Isabella's cousin Jeanne, the daughter of Charles of Valois, and they had five girls, Sibella, Margaret, Philippa, Jeanne and Isabella. Stapledon's description of the princess selected still survives, but does not mention her name. It's likely that she was the eldest, Sibella, who died soon afterwards, which was probably why the negotiations proceeded no further. Some historians suggest that it was Philippa who was described, but it's hardly credible that the third daughter would take precedence before the first and second. Parliament met at York on May 6th. Isabella was probably present with the king. The time for the muster was now drawing near, but it was postponed until July 22nd. 
The king left York on July 14th and, in August, met up with Pembroke, Surrey, Hereford, Arundel, Dispenser, Lancaster, and Lancaster's brother Henry at Newcastle, where 8,000 men were waiting for him. Then he led them north and, on September 7th, laid siege to Berwick. Although Lancaster was cooperating with the king in this venture, his support was half-hearted at best. It was commented on that none of his men attempted to scale the walls, and an angry Edward was still bent on destroying him. During the siege, he told the dispensers, When this wretched business is over, we will turn our hands to other matters, for I have not yet forgotten the wrong that was done to my brother Piers. Isabella, meanwhile, was staying with her children in a little rural dwelling near York, possibly at Brotherton, or at the Archbishop of York's palace at Bishopsthorpe. As both of these houses were more than a hundred miles from the siege, she must have reasoned that she would be safe. But while Edward was at Berwick, the Scots were raiding the north of England with impunity and the legendary Black Douglas had penetrated as far as Yorkshire with 10,000 men, having conceived the daring plan of kidnapping the Queen of England and holding her to ransom. Had the Queen at that time been captured, I believe that Scotland would have bought peace for herself, observed the author of the Vita Edwardi Secundi. Indeed, with Isabella as a hostage, King Edward would have little choice but to acknowledge Bruce as King of Scots. In fact, he would have had to agree to everything Bruce demanded. Douglas marched into England with great secrecy and nearly arrived at the village where Queen Isabella and her children resided. But, by great good chance, one of his scouts fell into the hands of William Melton, the saintly Archbishop of York, Threatened with torture, the man promised him, if they would spare him, to confess the great danger their queen was in. Melton and his colleagues laughed his intelligence to scorn until he staked his life that if they sent scouts in the direction he pointed out, they would find Douglas and his host within a few hours' march of the queen's retreat. Alarmed by the proofs given by the man, the archbishop and John Hotham the Bishop of Ely, went forth from the city with their usual retinues and the sheriffs and the burgesses and their followers, the monks and canons and other regulars, as well as anyone else who could handle a weapon. They marched on a sudden to the Queen's residence with the tidings of her great danger and brought her back to the city. Thence, for her greater security, she was taken by water to Nottingham where she probably sought refuge in the castle. Then Melton hurriedly gathered together an army of monks and old men and bravely marched to confront the Black Douglas. But they were no match for the Scots, and on September 12th was savagely defeated at the Battle of Mighton in Swaledale. Because so many clergy were slaughtered, this battle became known as the Chapter of Mighton. If the plot to abduct Isabella was a decoying tactic, it worked, because on September 17th, once news reached the king of how narrowly she had escaped capture, he abandoned the siege of Berwick and hurried back to York, just as the victorious Scots were making their way home, unopposed, through Lancaster's lands, and then north via Westmoreland, burning the harvest as they went. On December 22nd, Edward had no choice but to make a two-year truce with Bruce. By now, his reputation was in the dust, and from this time forward, according to Robert of Reading, his infamy began to be notorious, not to mention his torpor, his cowardice, and his indifference to his crown and his realm. Again, there was popular speculation that he was a changeling. The failure of the Scottish campaign led to further bad feeling and angry accusations. 
The jealous barons pointed the finger at the younger dispenser as the man who had betrayed the queen, which is perhaps indicative of ill-feeling on his part towards her. But, in his defence, he and his father blamed Lancaster, alleging that Bruce had bribed the earl to create a diversion by threatening Isabella, a charge that was believed by many. There was no escaping the fact that someone with knowledge of the whereabouts of the king and queen had passed that information to the Scots. It's hard to see what motive Lancaster or Dispenser could have had in sabotaging the siege. Nor did Isabella ever accuse Dispenser of doing so, even when, later, she had good cause and opportunity. As for Lancaster, rumour alone was active, and there was no evident crime. Furthermore, there is evidence that the real culprit was possibly Sir Edmund Darrell, a certain soldier of the King's Chamber, who is named as the traitor by both Robert of Reading and the Annales Paulini. Darrell was a Yorkshire knight who had been in the service of the Percys and a known opponent of the King. In 1313, he had been arrested as an accessory to Gaveston's murder. In 1322, he would again be apprehended for taking up arms against the king, and spend two years in the tower as punishment. Darrell may have been prompted by financial hardship to pass his information to the Scots. We know that he had raided and looted his neighbour's property, which suggests he had fallen on hard times. Moreover, there was talk that the Scots had paid large bribes for information leading to the kidnapping of the Queen. The Annales Paulini state that back in May, while Parliament was sitting at York, Darrell had been arrested for betraying the Queen, but that he had been released for lack of evidence. The King, however, had dismissed him from his service. This suggests that the plot to capture Isabella had been conceived months earlier, and that, angry at his dismissal and still badly in need of money, Darrell made a second attempt in September. Edward spent Christmas that year at York, having invited the scholars of King's Hall to join him. Isabella had rejoined Edward at York by January 1st, 1320 for on that day he gave her expensive gifts, including jewellery. Edward had now finally arranged to go to France to pay homage to Philip V, and the Queen was no doubt looking forward to their trip, for which preparations began early in the new year. It was six years since she had visited her homeland. Lancaster now capitalised on Edward's unimpressive showing at Berwick, when Parliament met at York on January 20th, he refused to attend, on the grounds that the King and his associates were suspect by him, and he had openly proclaimed them his enemies. There can be little doubt that he was referring to the dispensers. Without Lancaster to restrain it, Parliament arranged a reshuffle of officers and promoted members of the court party, men high in the King's favour, and in dispensers. On January 27th, Robert Baldock, a clerk of the wardrobe, was appointed Keeper of the Privy Seal. Baldock owed his preferment not so much to his brilliant administrative talents, but to the patronage of the younger dispenser, whose brain and hand he was reputed to be. Walter Stapledon, Bishop of Exeter, was made Treasurer. He was a learned man who founded Stapleton Hall, later Exeter College, in Oxford, and he was utterly loyal to the king. But he would soon be detested for his extortions and his perceived alignment with the dispensers to whom he probably owed his appointment as treasurer. It's clear that Isabella came to hate and distrust Stapleton, and this enmity on her part was in time to have deadly consequences for him. This ends Disc 6. Queen Isabella, Disc 7.
At the end of January, Edward and Isabella returned to Westminster, whence, in February, they departed for Dover. But having got as far as Canterbury, they suddenly made their way back to London. It seems that Philip had failed to issue a safe conduct, or it had not arrived. Around this time, Thomas Cobham, Bishop of Worcester, noticed an improvement in the king's conduct, which was signified by his rising earlier than hitherto in the mornings to face his duties, and respectfully, wisely, and with discernment, listening patiently to all who wished to speak to him, contrary to his wont. Edward also won praise for banning from his court entertainers who were notorious for their insolence and greed. The king was apparently feeling the need to get away from all his troubles, for around this time he began converting a hut or shack within the precincts of Westminster Abbey as a private retreat. The hut was known as Burgundy, and the king let it be known that he preferred to be called King of Burgundy than use the magnificent titles of his famous royal ancestors. Edward was back in Kent in March and visited Canterbury on the 12th. On March 24th, Philip V issued the king and queen with a safe conduct to travel through France, but again, on April 7th, Edward returned to Westminster. Edward and Isabella finally sailed to France on June 17th, leaving Pembroke as Keeper of the Realm. The younger Dispenser and Roger Damery were in Edward's train, while Pembroke's Countess, Beatrice de Clermont, daughter of the Constable of France, was among the Queen's chief attendants. Beatrice was to die that year. The elder Dispenser, Bartholomew de Badlesmere and Edmund of Woodstock, Earl of Kent, the younger son of Edward I by Marguerite of France, joined the royal entourage in France. Edward paid homage to Philip before the high altar in Amiens Cathedral on June 20th, and in return Philip took steps to ensure that the French party in Ponthieu would no longer pose a threat to Isabella's authority there. Philip also promised Edward military aid against Lancaster. During this summit, Isabella presented a petition to her brother on behalf of an English merchant who had asked King Edward to intercede for him. Edward obviously thought that the man stood a better chance of success if the Queen put his request to her brother. The King and Queen lingered in France for a further month. On July 20th, they attended the consecration of the newly elected Bishop of Lincoln, Henry Burgish, in Boulogne Cathedral. Burgish, an avaricious and unscrupulous prelate, who was related to both the Mortimers and Bartholomew de Badlesmere, was not yet thirty, but was already riding high in the king's favour, thanks to his championing of Edward at the papal court which had contributed to the pontiffs releasing the king from his vow to obey the ordinances. Edward had paid no less than £15,000 in bribes to the Holy See for Burgish's appointment, which created a scandal and led many to question its legality. Later evidence strongly suggests that Isabella also thought highly of Burgish. Two days after the new bishop's enthronement, the royal couple returned to England, and on August 2nd made a state entry into London where they had a warm reception, the mayor and citizens in their robes of office riding out to meet them in fine style. September found the Queen at Clarendon, and then at her manor of Banstead in Surrey, which she'd inherited from Queen Marguerite. The manor house, which had been in royal hands since 1273, was a large, timbered building with a tiled roof and stood east of the churchyard in a hunting park. Isabella ordered repairs to the roof, but did little to restore the crumbling walls that enclosed the house. A new conflict was looming on the horizon. The dispensers were by now a political force to be reckoned with, and Edward was using them to create a new court party. The younger Hugh had become 
the King of England's right eye and his chief counsellor against the earls and barons, but an eyesore to the rest of the kingdom. His every desire became a royal command. He had gained so much influence over the king and had so moulded his opinions that nothing was done without him and everything was done by him. The king paid more attention to him than to anyone. More alarmingly, Sir Hugh and his father wanted to gain supremacy over all the knights and barons of England, and it looked as if they were succeeding in this objective. Unsurprisingly, bitter hatred and discontent arose between the barons and the king's council, especially against Sir Hugh le Despenser, who was, it was said, even worse than Gaveston. Unlike Gaveston, Despenser understood the nature of the baronial opposition and was ready to champion the king against his enemies, particularly Lancaster. It is likely, too, that by now the Queen had also come to regard Despenser as a sinister influence, and that relations between her and the new favourites had become strained, for, in 1320, the elder Despenser suddenly ceased paying the Queen the considerable dues owed to her from his manner of lechlade. It seems he had been infected by the contempt in which his son undoubtedly held Isabella. For up until recently, there had apparently been nothing but goodwill between the Queen and the elder dispenser. Indeed, back in 1312, he had been chosen as one of Prince Edward's godfathers. Capitalising on his influential position and fired by greed, Hugh the Younger was concentrating all his formidable efforts on getting his hands on the whole of the Gloucester inheritance and on building up a vast power base in South Wales. In May 1320, he had deceitfully wrested Newport and Netherwent from Audley in return for lesser manners in England. He had also been granted Lundy Island, which gave him control over the Bristol Channel. The Mortimers and the other marcher lords felt threatened by Despenser's aggrandizement. They realised that he meant to build up a large lordship for himself in what had hitherto been their power base, and they feared that their independence and even their own lands were at risk. The Mortimers in particular had good reason to fear Despenser, for a Mortimer had killed his grandfather during the Barons' Wars of the 1260s, and Despenser, whose family had borne a bitter grudge against the Mortimers ever since, was determined to avenge him. Already he was doing his aggressive best to appropriate certain estates that had been granted to Roger Mortimer, and he was probably responsible for Roger's recall from Ireland in September. But the lordship that Dispenser now coveted most was Gower, which lay alongside his lands in Glamorgan, and which had recently been purchased by John Mowbray from his penurious father-in-law, William de Breus, whose daughter and heiress was Mowbray's wife. As was the time-honoured custom with the Marcher lords, Mowbray did not obtain the king's licence to take possession of Gower. But this omission was exploited by Despenser, who insisted it was illegal, and urged Edward to declare the land forfeit and grant it to himself. This was a direct attack on Marcher privileges, but the king did not recognise it as such. On October 26th, Edward, a willing tool in Despenser's hands, confiscated Gower from John Mowbray, who adamantly refused to surrender it. Furious, Edward sent men to take it from him by force on November 14. The Marcher lords were outraged, and Hereford formed a confederacy against the Despensers, which included Mowbray, Audley, Damery, and the Mortimers. Lancaster also promised his support. Effectively, there now occurred a great schism between the king and most of the nobility, all on account of his overweening affection for Despenser. Roger Mortimer was at court at Westminster in November, but by January 1321, 
Having failed to persuade the king to agree to any compromise, he and most of the other marchers had withdrawn from court and gone home to fortify their castles and rally the rest of the barons. Deeply moved by Despenser's abuse, the barons unanimously decided that he must be pursued and utterly destroyed. As Isabella realized that she was once again pregnant, civil war seemed a certainty. Chapter 5 The Displeasure of the Queen On February 27, 1321, the marchers met with Lancaster, hoping to enlist his support. They were well aware that they now faced an almost impossible choice between rising against their lawful king, which was treason, or countenancing the depredations of the dispensers. There was really no contest, for the latter were proving ruinous to the marchers and their time-hallowed privileges, and so the marchers resolved to force the king to dismiss his favourites as he had Piers Gaveston. Lancaster agreed with them that the best way forward would be to mount an offensive on the dispenser lands in South Wales. The king, warned by dispenser, had anticipated this, and on March 1st at Westminster began mobilising troops and gave orders that all the royal castles in Wales be prepared for war. By so closely identifying himself with the dispenser's interests, he was effectively placing the fundamentally royalist marchers in open rebellion against the crown, making reluctant traitors of most of them, and losing the support of other barons who also resented the influence of the favourites. On March 27th, and again on April 13th, the king commanded all his subjects to keep the peace and forbade any assemblies. The next day, he summoned the marcher lords to convene at Gloucester on April 5th. But Hereford and Mortimer refused to come into the king's presence while the younger dispenser remained in his company, and demanded that Hugh be placed in Lancaster's custody while their grievances were aired in Parliament. Edward refused to listen. Three days later, he confiscated Audley's estates in the marchers. Isabella herself was known to be no friend to the dispensers. Her support was enlisted at this time in a dispute in which they had involved themselves. This quarrel between the abbot of St. Albans and his subordinate, William de Somerton, prior of the abbey cell at Binham in Norfolk, was in itself relatively unimportant, that is, until the abbot called upon dispenser to support him. Resorting to his usual brutal methods, Dispenser dispatched his men to arrest Somerton and drag him to the abbot who summarily cast him in jail. Some of the marchers, eager to discredit Dispenser, notably Mowbray and Mortimer, now appealed to the Queen to intervene with the King in order to secure Somerton's release. Clearly, Isabella was ready and willing to defy the favourites. And so persuasive was she that Edward granted her request, much to the annoyance of the dispensers, who must have added another notch in their reckoning against Isabella. Yet, whatever she might have felt about the dispensers, Isabella's loyalties at this time lay firmly with the king. Certainly she had no sympathy for Lancaster— she may even have come to regard the marcher's hostility to Dispenser as an attack on the king, as did Edward himself. On April 20th, in demonstration of her loyalty, Isabella turned over her castle at Marlborough to the elder Dispenser. At Easter, she appointed a prominent royalist, John de Trujegu, to her shrievalty of Cornwall. And then, on May 3rd, she put her castle at Devizes in the custody of another of Edward's supporters, Oliver de Ingham. The king had now raised a strong force and marched westwards, reaching Bristol by Easter. From here, he issued a further summons to the marchers to meet with him on May 10th. On May 1st, 
As they took up battle stations, he warned them not to attack the dispensers. But they paid him no heed, and on May 4th launched a devastating attack on the dispenser lands. By May 12th, Newport, Cardiff and Caerphilly had fallen to Mortimer and the vast Marcher army, which thereafter swept across Glamorgan and Gloucestershire, seizing castles, burning, looting, destroying crops, and leaving in its wake a trail of devastation. Having accomplished their objective, the marchers then rode north to meet once more with Lancaster. On May 24th, Lancaster held what was effectively a private parliament at Pontefract. The result was an alliance between the Earl and the Marchers, who all swore to defend their own lands and one another's. This was followed by a baronial convention at Sherburn in Elmet on June 28th, at which the rebels, henceforth to be known as the Contrarians, were loud in their condemnation of the disjoined Mortimer, and all demanded that the king hear their complaints concerning the dispensers. They cited eleven articles against them, accusing them, among other things, of usurping the royal authority, inciting civil war, perverting justice, barring the magnates from the king's presence, committing acts of violence and fraud, and alienating the king from his people. If Edward did not banish the favourites, they warned, they would renounce their homage and set up another in his place. Notwithstanding this, Edward stubbornly refused to accede to their demands, and Dispenser sailed menacingly up and down the Thames in a borrowed ship, only stopping when the barons threatened to burn to the ground all the royal buildings between Charing Cross and Westminster Abbey. Isabella had left the Tower by July 24th, but was still in London on that date. She, Airman and Northborough, retained custody of the Great Seal until at least August 24th. Pembroke, meanwhile, had just returned from Paris, where he had married Marie de Chatillon, daughter of Guy IV, Count of Saint-Paul, by Mary of Brittany, a granddaughter of Henry III. Count Guy's half-sister, Blanche of Artois, was Isabella's grandmother, so the Queen and Marie were cousins. They were also related through Marie's sister, Matilda, who had married Charles, Count of Valois, Isabella's uncle. Not surprisingly, Isabella and Marie soon became close friends. A well-educated woman and a great patron of letters, the Countess Marie was to found Pembroke College at Cambridge in 1347. On August 1st, the King, panicking at the Baron's demands, summoned Pembroke to Westminster. The Earl arrived the next day, met firstly with Edward and subsequently with the Marchers, then did his best to persuade the King to agree to the Marchers' demands. But the King wouldn't hear of it. Then Pembroke suggested that the Queen intervene in the hope of achieving a settlement. She'd been so successful in the past that she'd now earned a reputation as a peacemaker. Isabella was willing to do her best, and, supported by Pembroke, Richmond, and the bishops, she went to the king and begged on her knees for the people's sake that he would show mercy to his subjects by banishing the dispensers and making peace with his lords. It was now that Pembroke warned Edward, he perishes on the rocks that loves another more than himself. The Queen's intervention allowed the King to capitulate to his opponents without too much loss of face, and at length, on August 14th, he reluctantly summoned the marchers to Westminster Hall and icily informed them that he had agreed to send away his favourites within the month. Five days later, the dispensers were sentenced to exile and forfeiture and forbidden to return to England without the consent of Parliament. On the following day, August 20th, pardons were issued to Lancaster, the Mortimers, and the other marcher lords who had risen against the king. Reluctantly, the dispensers left their native soil and splendour. 
The elder Hugh went first to Flanders, thence to Bordeaux, while his son embarked upon a successful career as a pirate in the English Channel, where he became a sea monster, lying in wait for the merchants as they crossed his path. He was master of the seas, their merchandise and chattels, and no ship got through unharmed. His greatest prize was a Genoese ship. Having boarded it, he slew its crew and stole more than five thousand pounds worth of treasure. Many years later, King Edward III had to repay that amount with interest in compensation to the owners of the vessel. Edward had no intention of being parted from the dispensers for long, and was resolved to be revenged on those barons who had forced him to have them exiled. With a cunning scheme in mind, he went to Rochester on August 30th and to Gravesend by September 19th. Some sources claim that he and Isabella then went on yet another pilgrimage to Canterbury, but this is unlikely, since the city was packed with the armed retainers of the powerful Kentish baron, Lord Badlesmere. And Badlesmere, despite being steward of the royal household, had recently thrown in his lot with Lancaster and the Marchers. His daughter Elizabeth was married to Mortimer's heir, Edmund. It's almost certain that the king was in contact with Dispenser at this time, because he and Isabella met with him when the latter's ship put in at the Isle of Thanet later in September. When Edward returned to London on September 23rd and lodged in the tower, Isabella was probably with him. But then, on October 1st, Edward went to Sheen, then on to Byfleet in Surrey the next day, and Isabella travelled back to Kent, ostensibly on yet another pilgrimage to Canterbury. However, the real purpose of her journey seems to have been to force a confrontation with Badlesmere. Badlesmere's chief seat was at Leeds Castle, which until 1318 had formed part of the dower of the Queens of England, having been the favoured residence of Eleanor of Castile and Marguerite of France. But on Marguerite's death, Notwithstanding the fact that the reversion of the castle had been promised in 1314 to Isabella, the king granted Leeds to Badlesmere, in return for the manor of Adderley in Shropshire. But Badlesmere was now a marked man, having angered the king by supporting his enemies, and in September he had prepared all his castles for war and stored his treasure for safety at Leeds, which he placed in the care of his wife, Margaret de Clare. Clearly, he was expecting an attack. In sending Isabella to Leeds at this time, Edward was almost certainly springing a trap for Badlesmere, a trap he may well have plotted with Dispenser during their meeting at Thanet. Its purpose was to provide a just cause for the king to move against the contrarians. On October 2nd, Isabella approached Leeds Castle and told her retinue that she purposed to rest there for a night. Accordingly, her harbingers and purveyors were sent ahead to make the necessary arrangements. They found, however, that Badlesmere was away and that his wife was in charge of the castle. Understandably, Lady Badlesmere was alarmed, for if the Queen were indeed on a pilgrimage to Canterbury, she had gone considerably out of her way to visit Leeds, since the usual route was through northern Kent. Moreover, she had brought with her a military escort. So Lady Badlesmere told the Queen's officers that her husband had left her strict instructions not to allow anyone to enter the castle, and, insolently, suggested that the Queen might seek some other lodging for she would not admit anyone within the castle without an order from her lord. The shocked harbingers rode back to Isabella to inform her of the position, and, indignant at what she was pleased to call treason, she insisted on confronting Lady Badlesmere herself. But when the Queen and her retinue drew up before Leeds Castle, Lady Badlesmere remained obdurate and when Isabella instructed her marshals to force an entry into the castle, 
Lady Battlesmere ordered the archers of the garrison to open fire on them. Six men fell dead before Isabella's appalled eyes, and the Queen prudently retired to seek shelter in a nearby priory. She had no doubt expected some opposition, but nothing as violent and contemptuous as what she'd just witnessed, and her anger was genuine. On October the 3rd, Isabella sent an urgent and indignant message to Edward, now at Whitley, complaining bitterly about the affront to her dignity, asking him to send soldiers to her assistance and begging him to avenge the murder of her servants and punish Lady Battlesmere for her defiance of all the laws of courtesy and hospitality. The king must have been secretly delighted at the outcome of his little scheme, but nevertheless showed himself incandescent at such an outrageous slight to his beloved consort, using it as a pretext to take up arms against Battlesmere, which he almost certainly intended as a preliminary to netting the bigger fish. On October 4th, Edward moved to Porchester for a second clandestine meeting with Dispenser. Then, on the 7th and 8th, the king began to hire mercenaries and ordered a general muster of all persons between the ages of sixteen and sixty. After nine days at Porchester, he was back at the Tower by October 14th. Edward had written to Battlesmere, complaining of his wife's conduct, and Battlesmere played right into Edward's hands when he sent an insulting letter in reply, declaring he approved of this misconduct of his family in thus obstructing and contumeliously treating the Queen. On October 16th, the King declared that he would make an example of Battlesmere, and the very next day he sent Pembroke at the head of the vast army he had summoned to lay siege to Leeds Castle, to punish the disobedience and contempt against the Queen committed by certain members of the household of Bartholomew de Battlesmere. Lady Battlesmere, realising that she could not withstand a siege for long, sent a frantic message to her husband, who had by now joined the retiring marcher forces at Oxford. By October 23rd, the day Pembroke drew up his forces before Leeds, Isabella had moved to Rochester, where, jointly with William Ehrman, she was again given custody of the Great Seal. Meanwhile, at Battlesmere's urging, Mortimer and Hereford had marched south, aiming to relieve Leeds. In so doing, they were placing themselves in direct opposition to the king, which would prove a fatal mistake. By October 27th, their army had reached Kingston-upon-Thames, where Pembroke came to persuade them not to advance into Kent. Then they received a message from Lancaster who had had no time for Battlesmere, since he'd been made steward of the household against Lancaster's will. He made it clear that he did not approve of Mortimer and Hereford going to Battlesmere's aid. The marchers therefore stayed at Kingston, waiting upon events. Two chroniclers claim that they'd refused to go to the relief of Leeds out of respect for the Queen. Yet, at Battlesmere's entreaty, they tried to mediate with the king on his behalf. Edward, however, refused to heed their pleas. In avenging the insult to his popular queen, the king had stirred up a great deal of public support. Many barons, including Arundel, Richmond, Surrey, and the king's half-brothers, Thomas of Brotherton, Earl of Norfolk, and Edmund of Woodstock, Earl of Kent, had hastened to join Pembroke before Leeds Castle, as had many Londoners, for Isabella had always been highly regarded in the capital. The besieging forces now numbered 30,000. Heartened by this sudden surge of support, the king went personally to take charge of the siege. Leeds finally surrendered to the king on October 31st. Edward exacted a savage vengeance. Ignoring their pleas for mercy... He summarily hanged the constable of the castle and thirteen of his men before the castle gates. 
Lady Battlesmere and her children, among whom was the young wife of Mortimer's son, along with Battlesmere's sister and her son, Bartholomew Lord Burgish, whose brother Henry was the Bishop of Lincoln, were all taken prisoner and sent first to Dover Castle and thence to the Tower of London, the first women to be held in custody there. The king was determined to make an example of them all, so that no one in future would dare to hold fortresses against him. Although many at the time applauded his punitive measures, his first successful military operation since his accession, these punishments, in fact, mark the beginning of Edward II's tyranny. No longer could he be dismissed as a weak and inept apology for a king, for he'd made it terrifyingly clear that any person who rebelled against him or defied him might not just suffer imprisonment or a fine, as before, but might lose his life as well as his goods and have his womenfolk and kinsmen clapped into jail, and all without proper process of law. The seeds of political violence sown with the murder of Gaveston were bearing a bitter harvest, one that would set precedents for centuries to come. Isabella left Rochester on November 4th and joined her victorious husband at Tunbridge Castle, where she surrendered the Great Seal into his custody. The king had brought with him provisions that he had seized from Leeds Castle and gave them to Isabella as compensation for her ordeal there. It appears that he also gave her Leeds Castle itself, which had now reverted to the crown. Although there is no record of any grant of it to Isabella before 1327, a roll of her receiver's receipts for Easter 1322 records that victuals in Leeds Castle were sold by the Queen's command, which suggests that the castle was in her possession. The royal couple returned to Westminster on the 9th. That month, with the terrifying example of Leeds before them, all Battlesmere's castles surrendered to the king. Knowing he now occupied a strong position, Edward was determined to press home his advantage and reclaim his royal prerogative. To achieve this, he was determined to deal once and for all with the Marchers and Lancaster. After learning what had happened at Leeds, Mortimer and Hereford had fled north to meet with Lancaster, knowing that the king was a man without mercy and would destroy them. On November 29th, Lancaster held another private parliament, this time at Doncaster, which Mortimer and Hereford attended, in defiance of an order from the king. Here, Lancaster assured them of his support in their quarrel with Edward and the dispensers. In the light of the events just recounted, the assertions of Agnes Strickland and Denham Young that Isabella began an affair with Roger Mortimer in the autumn of 1321 are incredible. Mortimer was in opposition to the king throughout most of this period, and Isabella was loyally supporting her husband against both Lancaster and the Marchers. It's also hard to see what opportunities the Queen and Mortimer could have had to conduct such an affair, since he didn't attend court other than in a confrontational role. There's no evidence that either had any special regard for the other at this time. Strickland's whole theory is based on her misdating the birth of Princess Joan to 1322, when Mortimer was in the Tower of London. She asserts that Isabella's enmity towards the dispensers was an account of their hostility towards Roger Mortimer, and that it was her love for Roger that came to alienate the king. Neither claim is supported by the facts, as we will shortly see. Capitalising on his new ascendancy, Edward persuaded his friend, Archbishop Reynolds, to summon a convocation of the clergy to St. Paul's Cathedral on December 1st, and formally annul the sentence of banishment on the dispensers, 
on the grounds that it had not had the unanimous support of the bishops. In the absence of the Mortimers, the Welsh, who hated their oppressive rule, had taken up arms against them. Now, the king gave orders for his levies to meet with him at Cirencester on December 13th, ready to march on the lands of those contrarians who were still in open opposition. At the beginning of December, Mortimer and Hereford hurriedly returned to their estates, prepared to defend them. Edward was displaying unwanted energy and decisiveness. On December 8th, armed with Reynolds's decree of nullity, he invited the dispensers to return to England under his protection. At the same time, Lancaster was doing his best to undermine the king's support in London, sending the citizens a copy of the so-called Doncaster Petition, in which Edward's perfidy in supporting dispenser in acts of piracy was spelled out for all to see, and Lancaster himself was portrayed as a second Simon de Montfort, a guardian of the public interest whose sole objective was to rid the realm of the evil influence of the favourites. During this tense period, the Queen had been lodging in the Tower, but by December 10th she had joined the King at Langley. On that date, Edward commanded his treasurer to provide sixteen pieces of cloth for the apparel of ourselves and our dear companion, also furs against the next feast of Christmas, and thirteen pieces of cloth for corsets for our said companion and her damsels with napiery. Edward summoned more troops on December 13th, unaware that Lancaster had now resorted to treason. The Earl was actively seeking the aid of England's arch-enemy, Robert the Bruce, against his lawful sovereign. Proof of this is to be found in the safe conduct granted to his messenger by the Black Douglas on December 16th. Accompanied by his half-brothers, Norfolk and Kent, both active soldiers considering their youth, the King and his forces now chased after the marchers, reaching Sirencester by Christmas. Isabella appears to have stayed behind to keep the festival at Langley. On December 31st, Edward was at Worcester, planning to cross the Severn there and force a confrontation with the marchers who had retreated beyond the river. But the rebels had burned the bridge. The same thing happened on January 5th at Bridgenorth, where the king was again prevented from crossing the great river. As he moved north, the marchers panicked, and men began deserting in droves. Mortimer's only hope now was that Lancaster would come to relieve them. But for all his assurances of support, Lancaster was conspicuous by his absence, having deliberately remained holed up in Pontefract. On January 14th, the king crossed the Severn at Shrewsbury, and for the marchers, all was lost. The next day, Edward ordered the arrest of the Mortimers. He'd already issued a safe conduct so that they could come to him in safety. From Pontefract, Lancaster had continued to treat with the Scots. His emissary received a further safe conduct from them on January 15th, and the Earl was still negotiating with Bruce during February, using the pseudonym King Arthur and thus investing himself not only with a royal identity, but also with the qualities of the legendary hero. Before long, he was joined by Hereford, who had managed to flee from the path of the vengeful King Edward, who had to be content with seizing his lands and those of Audley and Damery. For the Mortimers, however, there was no escape. They did their best to make terms with Edward, but he would promise nothing. They had committed treason by rising in arms against him and in defying his commands and supporting his enemies. What did they expect? The only concession he made was twice to extend their safe conducts until the 20th and 21st of January. On that latter date, when the Mortimers failed to appear, Pembroke stepped in as a mediator rashly taking it upon himself to assure them that, if they submitted, 
their lives would be spared and they would be pardoned. Realizing they had no choice, uncle and nephew came to Shrewsbury on January 22nd and surrendered to the king. But instead of receiving clemency at his hands, they were put in chains and cast into jail. Edward now took a sweeping revenge on the Mortimers. On that same day, he confiscated all their lands and property, and the next day ordered the arrest of Lady Mortimer, who was imprisoned in Hampshire. Her husband and Chirk were taken to the Tower of London on February 13th. An Eno chronicle, the Chronographia Regum Francorum, claims that they were sent there because Dispenser had planted suspicions in Edward's mind that the Queen and Mortimer had become involved in a clandestine liaison. But this was written later, with the benefit of hindsight, and no other chronicler mentions it. And if the king had thought that his wife had betrayed him with his enemy, he would surely have punished her for it, given his vengeful mood at this time. The sons of Mortimer and Hereford were also apprehended and confined at Windsor, and Mortimer's three unmarried daughters were incarcerated in different nunneries, while his mother, loudly protesting, was stripped of some of her property. After this, as the king moved southwards, castle after castle fell to him, the last being Berkeley in Gloucestershire. Its owner, Thomas, Lord Berkeley, was cast into prison at Wallingford with his son Morris, who was married to Mortimer's daughter, Margaret. Both had sided with the marchers. Barclay's lands were later given to Dispenser. By then, the Dispensers were back in England. On January 22nd, Edward had appealed to Philip V to support him in the matter of their recall, not knowing that Philip had died on January 3rd, and, leaving only daughters, had been succeeded by his brother Charles IV, the last surviving brother of Isabella. Charles was crowned at Reims on February 21st, and soon afterwards had his ill-fated union to Blanche of Burgundy annulled. In September he married Marie of Luxembourg, who bore him two daughters in rapid succession. Although the dispensers had returned in secret in the middle of January, the king didn't issue the official writ sanctioning their return until February 11th. Inspired by his success against the marchers and encouraged by his favourites who were urging him to use force to repress the power of the barons and also by Isabella who was deeply offended by the failure of Lancaster and his allies to support the king against Battlesmere, Edward now resolved to make an end of Lancaster. At the end of February, he ordered a general muster of men at Coventry, ostensibly for the Scots, but when they were assembled, he marched north in pursuit of Lancaster, crossing the Trent before March 10th and taking the Earl's Castle of Tutbury, where evidence of Lancaster's dealings with Bruce was discovered, along with Roger Damery, who was hiding in the castle, badly wounded. He was tried and condemned to death, yet, because the king loved him much, he was reprieved. However, he died three days later. As Edward was ransacking Tutbury, a detachment of the royal forces defeated Lancaster's army at Burton-on-Trent. On March 12th, the Earl was publicly proclaimed a rebel, and the King gave orders that he and his adherents were to be hunted down. Lancaster fled north, probably hoping to seek sanctuary in Scotland, or to take refuge in his castle at Dunstanborough. But he was trapped at Boroughbridge, between the Royal Army and a force led by Andrew Harkley, the Sheriff of Westmoreland, who had gained an heroic...